Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both the host of this show as well as the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about transracial adoption and fostering. And specifically, we're going to be talking about understanding race and racial identity. We will be talking with Dr. Gina Samuels. She is a professor at the University of Chicago and director of the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. She is a transracial adoptee and the co-author of the book, Multiracial Cultural Attunement. Welcome, Dr. Samuels. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, transracial adoption and foster placements are common, and transracial kinship families are also increasingly common where grandparents or other relatives of one race are raising a biracial grandchild, niece, cousin, whatever. And transracial placements can be white parents with black, biracial, Asian, Latinx children or children of other racial or ethnic identities. But it can also include black and brown parents raising a white child. I think we often don't think of that, but that Mm -hmm. also is included uh, when we think of transracial adoption. And I I do believe that they, they often feel left out of this discussion. So let's start by just talking about how children in general, and let's make it specific to the U.S., uh, or you could talk if you could expand to other countries if you know as well. But how do children in the U.S. come to understand race at different ages and developmental stages? Yeah, and I think that's important to sort of state that kids who are adopted or kids who find themselves in foster care or are being raised by kin at the core are, are kids. And so there are some aspects yes. of their development that aren't any different than anyone else. And then there's sort of this layer that goes on top of their experience because they find themselves in these family structures that sometimes are different and distinct. And so I appreciate starting from the place of these are human being children. And <laughs> like any other human being children, they are aware of difference. And we know that even as young as as two, three months old, um, babies start to take in cues about who is familiar. Even before babies are born, they have the capacity to recognize familiar smells and sounds, mm-hmm. even in the womb. So I think one one thing for people to know is just as soon as two, three months old, babies are able to recognize differences in skin tone, facial features that later in their life, they will come to associate as race. But obviously as babies, they just know it's different. This person Mm -hmm. looks different. This person's hair is different. This person's skin tone is different. Their sound of voice is different. And so I think that's important for parents to think about in terms of exposing children to a whole range of difference in visible difference of people that we later will understand as race. And that, you know, the Clark Dahl tests that were done way back in the day to underdo or outdo the racial segregation in schools, we've done these things more recently Mm -hmm. uh, post-desegregation and found that still children of color and white children tend to pick up these preferences, these Eurocentric white preferences for white as being associated with uh, someone who you would trust, somebody who you might like better, somebody who you think is safer, somebody who you think is smarter or more attractive. And so, you know, that can happen as early as three mm-hmm. um, and certainly is in full bloom by the time a child goes to school and is in kindergarten. And so just like with gender or anything else, these are floating in the air of our society and children pick them up immediately and start to layer on top all of the meanings that we as adults ultimately come to associate with both good and bad things that have to do with race and culture. Mm-hmm. I think that that we don't acknowledge how quickly racial bias develops. I read a fascinating study that talked uh, that was at, at, at a very young age, like one or two children tended to prefer of same race, they would some familiarity and think, mm-hmm. but, but then when they, what was interesting, they did the same kids at four, three and four, and they found that even black and brown children were yes. preferring the, the in-group became the, the white, which yep. was, yeah, which is fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah. And over time, in the, you know, way uh, in the 40s, when this was first done, it, there was not much difference between kids of color and white kids in terms of preference for white. And what we found is now there is a slight improvement in that some kids of color don't have quite a strong preference for white or might also exhibit preference for their own race, but that for white kids, there's been no change in that um, preference. And so, Since the 1940s, wow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Let me pause for a minute to tell you about a free educational resource that we are providing thanks to the Jockey Being Family Foundation. We now have 12 free online courses available for you to listen to. It could be used as continuing education if you need that. It's, they're all about parenting and how to be the best parent to your child. You can get them at bit.ly slash J-B-F support. That is B-I-T dot L-Y slash, this is all one word, J-B-F support. And also let others know about it. So how does transracial adoption or fostering or kin care impact a child's understanding of race? So I think one of the ways in which transracial adoption, kinship care, or foster care can add another layer onto these normative developmental processes around race is that oftentimes we're walking around with families that don't necessarily match racially. And so we have in our society this presumption that families are created, particularly families that involve children, through biology. And so we presume that if you're a family, there's going to be at a very minimum racial resemblance. And when there's not racial resemblance, in addition to all the cues that any other child might get about race, you oftentimes experience as a multiracial family, a lot of external questions, stares, looks um, that cute you that you are not normal, <laughs> your family, you know, that, that your family's not expected. And so Oftentimes, I find that people who are new to transracial parenting or multiraciality by a family are really taken aback at how presumptuous and outward, uh, how, how assertive people are, strangers, in these very random places to ask you, how do you go together? <laughs> or even might do things subtly that cue, I, I'm not seeing that you all together. So you know, they might say, you know, I, I know that when I would go to dinner with my mom, sometimes as an adult, even people would say, is this together? Is this check together? Or people will come up to parents and be like, oh, or presume that they are adopted when sometimes they're not. <laughs> and so, you know, fam biological families or kinship care families might experience this, you know, kind of presumption that this is not your biological child or your biological grandchild when actually it is. So it can happen in all kinds of ways. But I think if you didn't grow up in a family that looked different in some kind of way, uh, the adults involved are oftentimes unprepared for the sort of onslaught of questions that oftentimes are really inappropriate <laughs> and very private, that people just feel compelled to like make meaning of how, 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 what explanation this is that how you all have come together in a family. And so I think, you know, the adults need to be ready for that and think through like, how are you going to model for your child responses to that, that don't make the situation more traumatic or dramatic than it needs to be, but that protects the boundary of your family really clearly. Okay, great. Perfect. Do we need to say anything, uh, but I don't know the answer to this. Do children who are transracially adopted, has there been any studies that have indicated that they are more, they, that they earlier attuned to race because they notice differences or not? I don't know if that's, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I think there, there is some indication that kids who are transracially adopted or kids that are growing up in a, in a family where they might earlier have these outside triggers. I think as we talked about earlier, that all kids very early learn about race. But what can happen is that kids who are in transracial adoptive families or multiracial families of some sort might, in a, in a very early way, also learn more adult meanings of race. And so while, you know, the children at three and four that might be exhibiting preferences for white bias, they may not be able to, they don't, they did not necessarily have a, an extreme circumstance or something that came to them from the outside that glossed on that adult meanings. But when you are walking around as a mixed race family and you might have adults that actually express this directly to you, it can 
prematurely expose you to the hatred and the bigotry part of the racial meaning of difference. So it's not just that you're recognizing that there are differences, which is not a bad thing to recognize, but that you also are exposed very early on to some people's very strong and negative opinions about your family, about you and the skin you're in. And oftentimes I think parents, particularly white parents, where they have not been exposed to that version of the world, are caught very unprepared for the strength of people's opinions around race mixing. So how does transracial or transcultural adoption or fostering or kin care impact kids? I think some of the ways in which transracial or transcultural adoption, kinship or fostering can impact kids sort of depends on ways in which Parents have introduced that as a, as a thing around which one socializes their identity. It has to do with whether the age of the child and whether or not they have a relationship. So I think oftentimes in foster care, there's a very different experience that these young people have in their foster homes because they have lived in their biological family. And so that presents a different kind of way of parenting because you're parenting a child that has had a certain number of years of experience being racially socialized and culturally socialized in their family of origin and then may either go to a grandparent or auntie where that may be different or similar or may go to someone who they are not related to where it could be completely different on many layers. I I do think that one of the things that oftentimes we don't talk about is the way in which being a transracial adoptee or having transracial fostering experience, that that is not the normative context in which people grow up, that there's the world is organized. And I I mentioned this earlier, the world is organized to understand families as having parents who share really key um, experiences that they anticipate their child is going to also experience and that they can pass this version of how they've coped in the world on. And that is particularly important for kids of color. And so we assume all our models of racial identity assume that parents have these capacities already in them and they've dealt with them in certain ways and then they can sort of transmit that initially to children. And in a mixed race family and in a transracially adoptive family, and particularly in white parented transracial adoptive families, that's not the case. And so sometimes that means that parents may for the very first time be in relation to someone with whom they do not share a race, but someone who they are needing to be the bridge to a community that they are not necessarily members to. And I think the degree to which they parents have not developed those kinds of anchors and relationships in those communities, independent of their children, that can be hard for parents to do alongside while their child is supposed to be doing having these relationships. And so I think a lot of times transracial adoptees, there's a phrase uh, that's called coming out of the fog. And I think a lot of transracial adoptees experience this period of their childhood, sometimes their entire childhood, as sort of being in this fog relationship to their cultural communities of origin or only being exposed to very superficial aspects of their cultural of origin, like through restaurants or festivals or that sort of thing. And that it's only until adulthood that many of us end up reconnecting or connecting for the first time in an independent way with people who look like us. And that can be very traumatic to do because people expect that at the age of 18 or 20, you're not having your first time Korean experience. And I guess I would also say the other, the difference between different groups is I think particularly kids who are mixed race with white. And I think kids who are Asian are at particular risk for growing up in incredibly white contexts. And um, some uh, research has been done on this by looking at census reports uh, as to where adoptive white adoptive families in particular uh, choose to live. And what uh, they found was that white parents of transracially adopted children of color live in whiter places than white parents do uh, of similar economic backgrounds and also of interracial couples and that Asian transracial adoptees lived in the whitest communities of all groups. And so that's a little concerning because it says something about the kind of the racial composition of the schools that those children are going to go to, to their churches or synagogues or places of worship, to their 
sports teams to, you know, their daily life. So it's not just that they're in a white family or a white parented family, but that they are also going to, you know, not have that access in other social spaces of their, of their daily life. And I do think that that's a little bit different than other kids of color where um, oftentimes they have through extended family or other social environmental conditions of their school have access to same race peers and experiences separate from their parents. And it's also just weird when you, you're an adult and you have a picture of your family up there and you invite people who don't know this about you. And they're like, who's that white lady in the, uh, you know, on the mantle? Or who's that white guy over there? Who's that, you know, what are you doing in that picture with those white people? And so I think there's just, it's just a lifetime of explaining that difference. And it comes up in the most weird spaces and times. And, you, and I think other folks don't, don't tend to need to do that kind of constant explaining about people that are so intimately connected to them as family. Another way in which transracial adoption or kinship care or fostering can impact children is the sort of racial ethos that white parents in particular come to understand what it will mean for their child of color and what whiteness in particular will and won't mean for their child of color and the degree to which being in a white family for a person of color can pass on or can you know convey white privilege to a child and i think certainly when you're growing up in a small community or a community where you can control the child's environment and everyone knows each other then there is sort of this sort of you know and a white parent shows up to advocate for a child of color there certainly is benefit sometimes to that in a especially in a predominantly white school or in a, in a community where there is not a lot of racial diversity I think the the problem with that is just like anything in parenting, parental protection only goes so far from the real world. And as a child grows up, they are going to have experiences out in the world that white people don't. And it actually becomes a risk factor for a child, the degree to which a parent hopes, hopes against hope that um, just because they want their child not to experience racism, that it won't happen. It's no different than, you know, any parent doesn't want their child to experience heartbreak. It's a normal part of life. We all have experienced it. And it's important and essential for children of color to learn how to deal with people and a society that is not necessarily going to give them the benefit of the doubt. That, in fact, is going to do quite the opposite for that. And so it's I, I would argue it's wildly dangerous to, to do that, though I understand why white parents want to do that. It's not possible. And so it's really important as, as people engage this idea of race, that part of that for a white parent is going to be to let go of the presumption of white privilege, that they, the way they imagine the world is the way the world is, and that there is a whole nother dimension of the world that their child is going to experience. And there is nothing that you can do to prevent it, but you can do something to prepare your child and to have conversations and be a place where your child, when they come to you in pain, that you are not gonna say, are you sure that was racism? Are you sure that happened to you? And that they're gonna have to prove it to you too. And so to be ready that when they come to you and say this thing happened, that you're ready to hear what happened to them, even if it's a beloved school that you went to and you never saw anything like that, or it's a beloved pastor that you have been, you know, that your family has gone to this church for your whole life and for multiple generations that all of a sudden a new version of that um, setting is, is being revealed and it will be harmful to your child if you're not able to be there with them to help them find their way through as you're trying to catch up with the, oh my gosh, did this really happen? And was it racism? And I think a lot of when I, uh, earlier when I did research on sort of with parents, there was an incredible amount of time that was spent trying to discern whether or not something was racist. So they, you know, post things like, okay, so I went into Target and this person was following us around and I looked around and they weren't following anyone else around. Do you think that was racism? You know, and I thought, but why are we wasting time? Let's pretend it was. What are you going to do? Like, let's just start from the place that it was. And what would you what would you want to do? What message do you want to give to your kid about that? How do you want to deal with that? Because there's so much about being a person of color that you never know for sure. Like, that's the 
that's the nature of it. You, you don't, you rarely know for sure if the person didn't sit next to you on the plane because you were black, or if the person looked at you askew because you were Asian and it's COVID. Uh, you, you can't, it's, these things oftentimes can't be proven. And so spending time with was it for sure is, is so unhelpful, but I think that that's where a lot of p- white people enter into the conversation of racism is that we have to know 100% for sure. And so how do we think as parents, whether it be kinship or foster or adoption, how do we just start from the place that the world has racism in it and that this will come to your child? And how do you want to partner with your child so that they exist in a supportive and loving family that is willing to see that with them through their eyes and through their experience of it? So, Dr. Samuels, in your research and in your experience, do you see a difference in the experience of how race is perceived by both the parent and the child, depending on the race of the child, whether the child is Asian or Latinx or Black or biracial? So in my, in my research and my training, I do see a difference based on uh, the race of the child and also of the parent across different racial groups like Latine, Latinx. Black, biracial, Asian, because in our society, we have different stereotypes about who these groups are, what their natural inclinations are, the degree to which these groups are proximal to whiteness or not. And I think, as I was mentioning earlier, in terms of where parents choose to live, where parents choose to adopt from also shapes these things and the imaginings of the importance of race. So I think a lot of times when we think about kids who are Latine or Latinx and Asian, we think in terms of culture. And when we engage ideas of Blackness, we think of terms of race and not culture. And that takes all kinds of shape then in terms of the things that parents think about in terms of the entry points into um, how I'm going to socialize my kid and what I'm going to expose them to and how and, and do... Do do Asians really experience racism? I think a lot of white people don't think they do. And so there's a lot of uh, Asian transracial adoptees that don't get racially socialized to expect racism and to deal with that. And I think in particular with biracial kids, particularly biracial kids that are mixed with white, there's a presumption that somehow white parents can connect through the whiteness part and that they're, they're not as, for example, not as black or they're not as Latinx or they're not as whatever it is and that you can kind of just kind of, you know, connect on that on that white side. And I think what ends up happening is that that's just not the way the world works, particularly for kids who are biracial, black, white. And so often and and there's a presumption that or there's a presumption that you're just black and that you'll just slip right in. And I think, you know, my mom always said that she felt like she did a really good job racially socializing my sister and I to blackness. And I would I would agree with that. But she had no clue uh, about what I would experience when I was on my own in a black community around skin tone and you know, these presumptions that I thought I was better because I was lighter skinned or my hair was quote unquote good hair. And these were things I was not exposed to at all, even through the black people that I knew growing up. And so to really understand, not only just, we've been talking a lot about preparation for racial bias, uh, presuming a white context, but there's also within group, skin tone bias, colorism, internalized racism, uh, all of that sort of stuff that I think also uh, many transracial adoptees don't get prepared to deal with the racial politics in their own birth cultures and the idea about what it is going to mean for them to try to develop relationships on their own, having been having grown up in a white family, that that's a liability <laughs> to to be able to get into a um, community of color and be seen as authentic. And so biracial people oftentimes wear on our faces our racial ambiguity. And so there is oftentimes an automatic presumption that we are proximal to whiteness through at least one white parent. And so there is an added sort of layer of racial socialization that we go through that we need to understand how are we going to bring these these different racial and ethnic and cultural groups together in our own being, in our own life? What is that going to mean for us? How do we have role models that are also mixed race and not just representative of these different um, of our parent racial ethnic heritages, but also of how do you do multiraciality in a healthy way 
And I think a lot of times parents aren't, aren't thinking at that level of complexity. Mm -hmm. So why is taking the colorblind approach to parenting not helpful? I mean, adoptees and foster youth often don't report experiences of racism to their white parents because they believe their parents will be unresponsive or will discount the incident. So why is, why is not being colorblind not helpful? So I think the reason why being colorblind isn't helpful is because when you convey to your child that the world is a certain way in a, in a fervent sort of statement of like, we're just people. I certainly talked to a lot of transracially adopted people where they said, you know, in our house, we couldn't even use the word race. We would have to just kind of talk about people as people and not use race signifiers. And our parents were very, you know, kind of proactive and, and assertive about that. And then you go out into the world and it really matters to everybody else. And everybody else is talking in racial uh, terms. It creates this schism of complete discordance between you're going out in the world and everyone else really cares about this. And then you come home and you have these sort of unspoken or spoken rules about race doesn't matter. And I, I think that a lot of times white parents do this as a sort of overt, obstinate rejection of that, like, we are not going to be a different family. We, you know, like, I, we are not going to, and sort of this very kind of strong ethos of, like, we're not going to, this does not matter. I love my child. It, I, it doesn't matter. And so I think for most people, it, it comes from a naive but well-intended place. But what it does is create a complete wacky reality for your kid. And if race doesn't matter, then also you're saying that everything that happens related to that child's race doesn't exist. So why would you go to your parents and tell them about something that they have been very clear about to you that it doesn't exist? So while I think a lot of parents think that, you know, pretending to not see race as much as that actually is really, really dishonest. Cause we, that's like saying, I don't see gender. I don't see that you're tall. I don't see that you have brown hair or blonde hair. It's kind of, it's dishonest. So in addition to being dishonest, it also, it doesn't create the very thing that I think a lot of parents think that that is going to do where it's erasing this barrier between them and they're going to be the same as humans. But what it actually does is very slowly start to create distance between a parent and a child. And it makes that parent not a safe place to go and explain what's happened and what should I do and how should I cope or even to be soothed and to be comforted by the racism that they're going to be experiencing. So parents actually in choosing colorblindness, they're choosing themselves and their own racial worldview over that of their child. And that's a very harmful thing to do rather than a helpful thing. Hey guys, if you have not signed up for our monthly newsletter, please do. It is great. Obviously, I just said it was monthly. It comes out once a month. It is a curation of some of the best content that we have found that month to share with you, to help you be a great parent to your child. You can subscribe by going to bit.ly slash transracialguide. And you can subscribe there. And as you can tell from the URL, you will also get our new downloadable guide titled Strengthening and Supporting Your Transracial Adoptee. That will be your thank you for subscribing to the newsletter. It is a fantastic guide. I cannot stress that enough. So go back to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash transracial guide. That's all one word, bit.ly slash transracial guide to subscribe to our newsletter and get your transracial guide, your strengthening and supporting your transracial adoptee guide. You know, going back to something you had said before that I'm curious about, I, you know, about how we often with Asian and not next children, we expose them to culture, but when we have black or biracial children, we expose them to race. You know, one of the things that I think that that black and brown parents, I'm sure, are facing as well as white transracial adoptive parents, although it probably comes more naturally in black and brown families, is how do we celebrate? We want to prepare our children for racism. And so we want to, we do focus on that. And yet 
are we not missing the, the celebration of all that it means to be black and brown? And that because we're spending so much time preparing them for the bad things that could happen, we're not celebrating all the wonderful things that happen because you are a, a black, brown, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to, to do both. You know, I would hope that we would do that all is, and that they're sort yeah. of required. Like it, you, in order to prepare someone for the reality that somebody's going to think that you're not attractive or somebody's going to think that you're not good enough, you have to tell them that they are. <laughs> and so it one requires the other. And so I, I would hope that as people are helping young children to sort of anticipate a world where not everybody is going to see you the way that I do. Not everybody's going to see you the way that our family does or that whatever, how, you know, how you do that, that you're also planting in children a sense of who they, who they are and that just telling them that is not enough. They need actual mirrors to see other people who are like them, who are happy and mm -hmm. having beautiful lives and that are different, mm -hmm. that a lot of mm -hmm. different versions of that. I think, you know, that's one thing that I think white people oftentimes take for granted is that there are lots of examples of fabulous white people and lots of examples of mm -hmm. crummy white people and lots of <laughs> examples of everyday white people that are, mm -hmm. are just, you know, whatever they are. And we all need that. Mm -hmm. We all need that. And I think we under white people sometimes underestimate the importance of presenting children in lots of shades, not just their same race, but people of all kinds of mm -hmm. shapes, sizes, forms, ages, cultural persuasions, religions, that just that kind of diversity and exposing children to all of that and that that shouldn't be a conversation and it shouldn't just be the world is scary and it's horrible and there are people who are going to hate you. It's not that, but it's a, a balance of those things and, it, and they aren't, they can't be conveyed just verbally that, that kids have to live that reality and see that and experience that reality. So it's not just you're telling your kid, oh, you're a great person, but then they go out and everybody they know in their environment doesn't see them that way and doesn't treat them that way. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just you're a great person, but that that the people of your race have done amazing and wonderful amazing things. things. It's, it's a it's a and you're right, and and some are do bad things, but that's the case for you know <laughs> everyone, everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a uh, we have in the last five years in the well, probably even more than that, maybe ten years in the transracial adoption world have really focused, particularly when we're talking about white parents and black kids, we've really focused on hair care. And while I yeah. think that hair care is hugely important, socially, culturally, as well yeah. as just how you look, the phrase now that we're kind of coming back to is it's more than about the hair. What what do we mean by that? And um, and how can that, I mean, we're not discounting the hair being important, <laughs> right. but but we want people to go beyond that. Right, right. So yeah, what we mean by more than hair, I remember I had when, when I just began doing transracial adoption trainings with parents, I had a I found a piece of clip art with a parent like yanking the crap out of a kid's hair. <laughs> and the care was care was scream the kid was screaming. And I thought, yeah, it's so like it's about hair, but it's not about hair. And so I think, you know, the degree to which it is about hair is that, you know, kids running around with a white, black kids in particular, running around with a white parent, either their biological parent or an adoptive parent. It sort of is a symbol of all things that seem to be wrong about <laughs> transracial adoption and white people raising kids of color. It's just sort of yep. become this emblematic symbol. And so there is not an adoptive parent of a black child around, or there shouldn't be, who is not a little paranoid. They want yes. They want yes. their kids' hair the to way not their signal. <laughs> exactly. Their child's hair is a reflection on their parenting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it kind of yeah. early on, it was. It was yeah. sort of like this, you know, like if your kid was running around with hair undone and unattended to, it sort of was like, wow, if you're gonna let your kid run around like that, what else are you neglecting? Yeah. So yeah. it became yeah. a signal of racial mm -hmm. neglect of white parents. And so, yes, I think it's a big deal. The piece where it's about more than hair is now you can go anywhere. There's YouTube. There's like, you know, like being able to do your hair now is not quite as foreign land as it used to be. And I think because white parents are are so signaled to, to that as a stereotype, it's sort of like now that's a frontier that more people are aware of. They need to be on top of. But 
that's like the basic, like giving your kid a bath and teaching them how to brush their teeth and their hair. Like these are basic foundations (laughs) of basic parenting, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's so much more than about hair, about how your kid feels in terms of being comfortable around other people who look like them. How comfortable are the parents around being around people who look like them? Where are you going to choose to live? How do you define a good school beyond academics and the degree to which a child's not just going to be able to be educated in a way that you want them to be um, academically, but also what's the social context that your child's going to experience every day, eight hours of their life away from you, and the degree to which that's going to provide racial safety and racial socialization that supplements whatever you're going to be able to do. And so I think the hair the hair is symbolic and I think will forever be in the minds of, of people, both in the Black community and for white parents, and will probably continue to be that way. But as we move forward and having a little bit more hair literacy, uh, cross-cultural hair literacy. There's just so much more to raising a healthy child, period, than how they wear their hair. And I think any parent would agree that raising Mm -hmm. their child extended far beyond and, and, (laughs) and creating a healthy child of any race, gender, sexuality requires so much more than their outward appearance um, and the development of that. And so that's, that's certainly also true for children of color. You have said in the past that transracial parenting requires the parents to be fluent in race talk and that socialization is not a conversation. It's a daily incremental and developmental family <laughs> process. I love that. And I uh, can you talk, uh, talk more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when I do trainings, parents will say, well, how do, when do I have a conversation or what age do I tell a kid this or whatever? And I think, well, that's, you know, race, race development isn't like that. It's a long-term sort of how you live and swim in the world. It's uh, how you model things every day. And I oftentimes compare it to how parents might think about religious education. You don't sit down and tell your kid, we're Baptist. You're a Baptist, and here's a picture of a Baptist, and here's a picture of a Baptist church, and next week we're going to go to a field trip and go to one, one you know, church service uh, once a year, and people laugh, like, you know, so I, how many of you are religious in some kind of way? How did you do that? How did you, how does that show up in your family life? What do you guys do that is Jewish, that is Catholic, that is Muslim, that is Buddhist? You know, like, what do you do? And the same way that you would want to socialize your child around that kind of an identity is what happens with race and culture. And if you don't do it that way, then whatever's dominant in your life and in your neighborhood will be the thing that your child is socialized to, which tends to be whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need to do extra things for that because the whole society in the U.S. is set up to socialize your child around that. And so you've got to do something that swims as strong of a stream as that does if you're also wanting your child to be that degree of familiar, fluent, comfortable, and then to truly choose to what degree do they want to, as an adult, engage. If you wanted your child to play piano, you don't show them a picture of a piano and let them touch it once and then think that when they're 18, they're going to choose to be a pianist. And so anything like that, that that is what race and culture and ethnicity is in our in our lives and it's, it's not a conversation. It, it involves conversations sometimes specifically, but it's so much more than that in order to really develop that as an identity and a, and a competence and a, and a part of who a person is. Mm-hmm. Something that I, I want to shift a bit, because I think we often don't talk about this enough, and that is how does becoming a transracial family through adoption or fostering or kinship care, how does that impact children who are already in the home who share the same race as their parents, be they by birth or adoption or, or, or fostering? Less of an issue with kin families. But, the, but how, does this, how does it change their worldview or, and, and for the good or for the better? And what do we do for the kids who are already there? How do we prepare them? Yeah, I think that is so under... I think the, you know the experience of siblings... Yes. You know, the experience of the siblings who are there already or come after, sometimes mm-hmm. that happens and a child is adopted and all of a sudden then 
a parent becomes pregnant and child biological children are become a part of that family system unexpectedly. That I think a lot of times we spend all our time thinking about what to do with the adopted child and forget that their siblings play a huge part mm-hmm. in their experience in that family, particularly in white families where kids are going to be the only brown kid. And then they have all these, you know, everybody else matches and they're the one that really, really uh, sticks out. And so we, we don't have a whole lot of research that ex- explains how do we how do we do that? I certainly am familiar in just my more informal and clinical work that a lot of times white siblings end up, you know, having to come go out to bat for their kid, their siblings at school. They themselves get teased about having a, a sibling of color. They get asked a lot of questions that sometimes people, kids will feel more comfortable going to the sibling to ask questions about their sibling and what mm-hmm. they are and how that happened and um, and all of that. And I think there isn't a lot of preparation as a family about mm-hmm. this is our family. It's not we're a white family with this black kid here or we're with this Asian kid here, but we are a mixed race family. We all carry this identity. And how do we want to handle this and to involve the whole family in having those kinds of dialogues so that the kid who's adopted or the children who are adopted, who are a different race, don't shoulder that on their own. And that all the, you know, that we're going to go to the, the whatever to this weekend for Tony, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. no, we're going as a family because this is part of our family identity and we're all going to experience it. And we're going to talk about it and what we learn and we're going to celebrate it so that siblings also feel they have some some capacity because they too might end up then seeing a world, a version of a world that they wouldn't had they not had mm-hmm. this sibling of color. And so I, I think that that's a sorely under attuned to aspect of, you know, it's all parent, parent and the one adopted kid or mm-hmm. the two adopted kids or whatever that is. And so I appreciate that question because I think we under attuned to the role that uh, siblings can play and also struggles that they might experience um, mm-hmm. that people aren't really paying attention to. And helping them understand how to respond to questions yep. because they are going to get it. Helping they them, are going to get it. Yeah, helping them understand. I am a huge believer in children's literature. I love children's literature, mm-hmm. and I love reading uh, to all kids, and, and I love doing yes. it to my kids. And and one of the we're going to come uh, to tips for parents, but one of the tips is going to certainly be including books and yes. one of the, and not just books about race but books where a, a brown or a black child is the just it's a normal book not even about race but they're the the heroine or they're yep. the main character or they're the enemy or whatever just mm-hmm. it, it but one of the, I was talking with a, a family of a mom a while back and and was ex- giving this as example and giving her some resources and, and finding these books. And she says, well, I will buy them. She was implying that she was buying it for her black child. And I, I said, buy it for all of your kids. Yeah. You, you once you're older. It. Yeah. Regardless of, they all need it. They, they yeah. all need to see the diversity of, of all the experiences. And so anyway, I throw that out there as, as well. In talking about uh, siblings, I think we would be remiss not to also talk about extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever, because they also are being impacted by our adoption. So let's talk some about the, the extended family and the importance of, of preparing and, and how to prepare, if it's even possible. So extended family is another one that I think is really under discussed. <laughs> you know, these are oftentimes folks that aren't key in the decision making process that I think even in the social work role of preparing, we don't necessarily talk through with parents. How are you going to handle racism or negative reactions or just shock <laughs> or unpreparedness? You know, it doesn't have to be traumatic, but just, yeah. you know, how are you preparing the grandparents of this child, the aunt and uncle of this child, the cousins of the, you know, how have you had conversations before with them about this? Do they know this? Just so that they can get a real sense, because I think sometimes parents are a little surprised about the reactions that their extended family members have. You know, are mm-hmm. you prepared to not go to, to a family event if it's going to mean your child is exposed to racism? Like, mm-hmm. Are you, you know, like, what would you do? And to actually help parents to think through that, how will they respond? How do, how have they responded before to, you know, Thanksgiving and 
watching football and Uncle Joe saying something really off-putting or worse, what is going to be your reaction to that? And really thinking that through. And that a lot of times in the research, when transracial adoptive families or young people talk about experiencing racism, it oftentimes is in the context of extended family Mm -hmm. and extended family gatherings. And that that happens also with biracial kids who are in kinship families where, you know, they're with their paternal grandparents or whatever, or they are cut off from paternal grandparents because of racism. And Mm so these things really cause schisms in in families. And I think it's a really important grandparents, aunties, uncles, cousins are such an incredible resource in raising children and in a family experience when there are healthy relationships. And Mm -hmm. certainly there's a lot of reasons besides race why people in their extended families don't have those connections and Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with race. But to think about in an otherwise supportive family system, how this family is or isn't ready to be supportive Mm -hmm. to a child of color is a really important circle of of resource and relational work that adoptive parents need to think about Mm -hmm. doing because it will profoundly shape that child's access to their grandparent as a as a loving, uh, nurturing parent Mm -hmm. or a grandparent or auntie or uncle or cousin or somebody from which they receive racial abuse and trauma and harm or just, you know, a lack of being able to, Mm -hmm. to plug in in a positive way. I do think something that we have to realize as parents, I, I firmly believe that grandparents do not have a voice in your family building, period. Just going to throw that out there. Period. Uh, period, yeah. Going to say I really felt strongly about that but in my own life. But I do think that it's, it's only fair for us to realize on some level that generally speaking, we have spent a lot of time thinking about, yes. especially if it's a, tra- well, adoption in general. Adoption, period, yeah. Adoption, period. But, but, that, but the, when you introduce the added complication of a transracial adoption, we've often hopefully studied, thought it through, made a decision that we are a family who can do this. Mm-hmm. But very often we haven't, our parents have not been any part of this. And no. so when we drop with them, by the way, hey. and we're excited. <laughs> we're, we're so excited, aren't you? <laughs> and, and we expect them to go from zero to 60, where we've taken a year to do that. Yeah. And we're expecting them to do it in about three minutes. Not even that. We're expecting yeah. to do it instantaneous because... It is the, we, we're looking at their face and if they don't yes. show overwhelming enthusiasm immediately. Yes. It's a sign. It's a sign. And then we're <laughs> going to get uh, defensive and yep. uh, potentially. So I just think that in fairness that we have to give, uh, help them understand why we made this decision. It was a decision. We're not asking their permission, but yeah. we've made this decision. These were the reasons. This is why we think we're up to it. Here are some resources that I'd love for you to get. You know, we can't wait. You're going to be a terrific grandparent. We, these are some resources. So to, to do it as opposed uh, with a little more gentle hand. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and I think, you know, these are, as you're, I'm listening to you talk, the family systems teacher in me is coming out that, you know, Children coming into families is often the times that triggers very intergenerational dynamics between (laughs) us and our own parents. And so the degree to which, you know, like the kind of relationship we've had over time with our own parents and our own grandparents and boundary setting that we've needed to do as an adult that, you know, you're not coming to ask permission, but you, you know, thinking from the perspective of your future child, that it's worth the investment, if you if, if you can, to think about the kind of relationship you'd like your child to have with their grandparent. What is the preparation that this grandparent needs so that they are on board? And and what do you what boundaries do you need to set mm-hmm. if they're if they're not? And how what, how do you imagine that unfolding is sort of a, a switch in kind of the identity of like, I'm taking my child's perspective about what is their grandparent need and wh- what is my role in preparing them for mm-hmm. something that I've decided to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. You guys have heard me say this before, but this show would not happen without the support of our partner agencies who believe in our mission of providing unbiased information supported through expert-based trauma-informed information to help you be, as I keep saying, the best parent possible. One such partner is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. 
They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international home studies and post adoption support, as well as a foster to adopt program. You can get more information about them online at vistadelmar.org slash adoption. All right, well, let's end with tips. What would tips would you give adoptive parents who are considering, or adoptive foster or kin parents, who are either considering taking a transracial placement or are in the midst of it? Yeah, I would say, you know, first just do a scan. Like your your kid that's coming shouldn't be the first whatever in your life. And I usually say that right away, that that, that that usually for me is a little bit of a red flag. If you are adopting a child of a different race, and this is going to be the first most intimate relationship you've had with somebody there, that that is a little bit of a signal to me that there's some relational building that you need to do, that you need to be on your own comfortable to have friendships and relationships and know people and be able to uh, navigate a particular racial or cultural community yourself in order to be able to teach that to your child. And so, you know, getting a little bit ahead so that you can be the parent who is doing that. And that doesn't mean that parents all the time don't learn alongside their children. They do. The kid The kid comes and you learn maybe more than mm-hmm. the, you teach the kid and that's beautiful. But this is one of those things where you need to be not at a two or three-year-old level with regard to race and racism. And I think for people who feel like, yeah, 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 I got that under control, have a conversation with some of your friends of color about what you're doing. And not in a, not in a way that is a permission kind of thing, but just, you know, talk with them and be open to what they're saying about how they understand you and your readiness and the sorts of things that you might be embarking on that, you know, I have these conversations oftentimes with my colleagues and it's the first time ever that they've heard from me certain things. And it's given me permission to be a lot more direct with them than I might've chosen to be otherwise. (laughs) And then I would say, you know, talk to some folks who are further down the road of transracial parenting and like a lot, don't go and just talk to one that's like, Oh, it's great. It's really wonderful and fabulous. Or one that's like, it's horrible. Don't do it. Like, you know, really talk to, to people, white parents who have done what you've done and have a little bit more sage advice and experience whose kids are adults maybe, and talk, talk to a lot about the things that they have learned, the processes that they had to go through, the changes and surprises or the things that they wish they would have done or the things that they did do and they're so glad that they did and talk to enough that you have a, a well-rounded sort of understanding of that. And then take seriously, I guess, where you're, where you're living and the, you know, the capacity of that community to supplement what is not what you what you're not going to personally bring in the kinds of relationships. I think a lot of parents do think about this in terms of a village, you know, and it's this is just another layer of requirement of that village that you have a number of people who can be in relationship with your kids who can embody various versions of identity for them. And and that that's great to have it be a similar race. And then it's also really great to expose, you know, my mom exposed us to uh, all kinds of races, cultures, ethnicities, uh, people, ages, et cetera. And so that it, everything wasn't just black and white in our house. And I always really, really valued that, having that kind of diversity. And so I think not just um, exploring just literally the country your child comes from, but also exposing them just to racial diversity and that that's a beautiful thing. It exists in our family and it exists all around the world. And to have that level of curiosity and, and love for that so that they can see it in lots of versions, I think is, is super important. Thank you so much, Dr. Gina Samuels, for being with us today to talk about transracial adoption. I truly appreciate it. 